This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy components of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Today, we've got a great show planned for you today. Uh, we're going to start off with some hot topics, uh, beginning with uh, innovation and digital transformation. That's one of those words I think a lot of us forget about when we're going through transformation. We forget about the fact that we're doing this largely to become more innovative. So we're going to talk about innovation in digital transformation. We'll talk about funding in the metaverse, uh, a recurring theme or topic that we've covered in the past on the show, at least with metaverse, but we haven't talked about the funding aspect of metaverse. Uh, we'll talk about positive leadership qualities that uh, make a good leader, which can be very helpful in any sort of transformation setting. We'll get into data in healthcare, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, future-proofing businesses, and digital transformation in the gaming and betting and gambling industry. Um, for much of the world, that's an illegal activity still, but for parts of the world, that's, it's legal and it's becoming a legitimate industry. Although I suppose it's even in areas where it's illegal, maybe this will be an interesting conversation. I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But we'll, we'll cover the hot topics uh, to start. And then later in the show, we have Nate Stroer, who's a practice lead at Third Stage Consulting. He's going to be on the show mm -hmm as a, cons uh, in the consultant hot seat, I should call it. Uh, he's not gonna be on here as a consultant, he is a consultant, uh, but he will be in the consultant hot seat. We're gonna ask him a bunch of questions about change management. And we're also gonna take audience questions to chat about change management as well. So stay tuned for that later in the show. And then finally, last but not least, later in the show, our third segment will be with Khalid Morris, who's a director of strategy and transformation at third stage. And he's gonna, uh, provide an overview of privacy and cybersecurity. And it's actually a clip from our recent Digital Stratosphere event. And it's a keynote presentation he gave. So we're going to play you that clip and unpack it a bit uh, later in the show. So stay tuned for all that stuff. Great episode for you today. Uh, but before we jump into our guests, what are some of these hot topics you got for us, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to start today by talking about how to future-proof your business. So there's been some studies after the COVID-19 pandemic just to talk about how businesses create a resilient strategy. So that we know there's a lot of ways that you can do that through technology. And one I wanted to talk about that kind of perked my interest was introducing introducing new products and services and diversifying your overall portfolio while leveraging technology. And this study specifically looked at the fitness industry and how they've really leveraged technology to offer virtual offerings and almost like a virtual subscription type of service. So we've, we've seen that kind of emerge within the marketplace as a tactic to continue to diversify your overall business and make sure you are uh, strategically resilient. 
I'm wondering if there's too many products and services, though, <laughs> if there's a fine line between diversification in your offerings and diluting your overall brand. And I wanted to get your um, your take on that. Well, that is a that certainly is a risk having too many products and not having the focus that maybe made you successful in the first place. But having said that, a lot of organizations or most of the clients we work with are focused on driving growth and scaling for growth. And oftentimes with growth comes the need for diversification of your product line and your services. And even if it's extending complementary or aug augmented services that, that augment what you already have, that can be a, a pretty powerful way to drive growth. But I think what you're getting at is even even more fundamental uh, component of digital transformation or should be a fundamental component of transformation is even if you're not really interested in diversifying at this point in your company or organization's trajectory, chances are fairly high that at some point in the future you may want to. So then the question is, how do you how do you implement new technologies and competencies to help you drive that innovation so that you can identify so that, so that you can identify those opportunities and, and capitalize them event, uh, ultimately. Yeah, and that brings me to my next topic, which is innovation, which is, you know, part of what you just defined. Um, so this actual study talked about the seven secrets to digital transformation success, and a lot of them we talk about on this show quite a bit. Um, but one, again, stood out that I wanted to kind of dig into with you, which is investing in your teams to actually spur innovation. So one of the CEOs polled here um, is he's actually a CDO, a chief digital officer um, at a luxury sleep company. And I want to read you a quote that he said about um, about what it looks like to inspire innovation in your teams. So he says, our internal QA, and by QA, he means quality assurance, team now focuses on 100% on automating testing and managing the queue from the crowdsourced operation. These changes shake up the skills you need on your team, cre creating a gap that your organization needs to fill with hiring or retraining. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting take on it because it almost talked about one of the the current trends that we really have a lot of conversations around, which is labor shortage and diversification in your team and in, in inspiring that innovation can often fill the gaps he's saying um, in, in a lot of the places in which your organization needs a specific skill set. So from that quality assurance innovation take, I wanted to just get your reaction to that overall perception of inspiring innovation through quality assurance, but still making sure that you're, um, you know, you're continuing to manage the project effectively through the overall timeline. Yeah, I, I think, you know, having that quality assurance is important for for product development and, and making sure that you, you're you developing products and services in a reasonable time frame. But I think another input that's really important in this um, that we haven't talked about yet is the, the whole access to data or visibility into mm -hmm. data. So if you look at all the different data points throughout your value chain and your customer interactions, your supplier interactions, there's a lot of data there that can stimulate a, a fair amount of innovation, either because you have better transparency into uh, the minds of your customers or your suppliers or you know supply chain challenges you might be facing that could lead to further innovation. Um, a lot of those data points uh, in, in access to business intelligence, predictive analytics, a lot of that can really drive and set a 
backdrop for enabling that sort of innovation as well, in addition to the quality assurance that you mentioned. Absolutely. And, and this specific stakeholder or leader talks about how that leveraging those assets like data or translating and scaling those skills like data management across your organization can be an investment in making sure that your people on that side are not only able to analyze the data, but innovate from that. Um, so I think that's a really crucial next step as many people can analyze data in that visibility, but creating that bridge to having new ideas or bold ideas around what could happen as a result of that really clean, sparkly data, I think is really important as well. Yeah, agreed. Um, and speaking of leadership, I found a really interesting study from the Harvard Business Review talking about positivity and leadership. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk to you about is, is this whole study talks about the power of that um, shared energy between leadership and overall uh, the workforce, that relational energy that creates a, a really positive environment. Um, so I wanted to read you when uh, a leader is a positive energizer, as they call it in this study, employees have greater job satisfaction, well-being, engagement, performance, and an overall better relationship with their family. And so I always believe in positivity and leadership, but on the younger leader side here at Third Stage, a lot of times I tap my colleagues on how do you be a positive leader, but still be able to have necessary and hard conversations with your, your team that might not have the most positive message. And as you know, a, a, the main leader here at Third Stage, I, I thought I'd get your take on, on the power of positivity is obviously um, clear. But how do you remain a positive leader and create an impact while having those conversations that every leader needs to have about either a performance plan or, you know, um, ending a relationship with an employee that doesn't make sense for the organization? How do you make sure you maintain positivity in that conversation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, really good question. Um, so I think you can be... Uh, you can be positive even when you have to deliver bad news. I mean, there's there's ways that you can you can not be naively naively optimistic or not trying to put a positive spin on something that's not. But if you sort of depersonalize uh, constructive feedback or if someone's on a performance plan, it's not about you as an individual or any one person. It's about hey, we all have this common goal. We're trying to row in this direction. Let's figure out how we can row in that direction together. So I think that's you know an example of how you can have a candid, transparent, and and honest conversation with someone, but not necessarily turn it into a into a negative. I mean, it might still be perceived as a negative, and mm -hmm. certainly, you know, if someone's on a performance plan, they're not going to be excited about it. But you can you can sort of take some of the edge off by depersonalizing it and just making it less about the person and more about this is where we're headed and this is what we need from you to to get there. Um, so I think there's there's even in in cases like that where you would think it's going to be a negative situation, you can make it a, a bit more positive or at least neutralize some of that negativity. Mm -hmm. um, I think on the flip side, though, you also have to, I think actually an even bigger risk, and this is something I've fallen prey to or victim to in the mm -hmm. past, is you become naively optimistic and you, yeah. you become, you paint these rosy, optimistic pictures that either are unachievable or, um, you know, just isn't realistic for whatever reason. And that can actually be really demoralizing. So on one hand, you're trying to be positive, but if you're overly positive or optimistic, it can uh, you know demoralize a team or um, 
undermine trust in leadership. And that, mm -hmm. that has happened to me in the past at my previous company. Um, so I think that's something that uh, you have to look at kind of both sides of the, the equation there, the extreme optimism, and then those other situations like you're talking about where it could be perceived as negative. Yeah, absolutely. And that authenticity, right? You can go around um, singing sunshine and rainbows, but if you don't have realistic goals or achievable goals within your organization, I know you and Nate will dig into that a little bit later in the episode. Um, but it's definitely an interesting conversation of what is that balance or as a leader, how do you create that self-awareness to say, I want to be positive, but at the same time, I need to be able to deliver um, a realistic expectations for my team because that's my service to them as a leader. That's my job. Um, yeah. So definitely a very interesting dynamic and balance. And you can also create a, as a leader, you also, it's not just you personally that has to be optimistic and convey that optimism. You also have to surround yourself and create a culture of optimism. And again, not naive optimism or unrealistic optimism, but just more can do attitudes and, you know, positive ways of thinking. I think if you surround yourself with that, it, it, it certainly makes, if you create that culture, it makes your job a lot easier as a mm -hmm. leader. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, um, and almost like that shield a little bit, because as a leader, a lot of times you are kind of the, um, you know, the mouthpiece of the organization, but also the feedback mechanism, right? So a lot of times you have to kind of understand what that means and empathize with where your team is coming from without kind of absorbing whatever negative energy might be around you in those conversations. So definitely not a, not a small ask when it comes to overall leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Well, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about my favorite thing, which is the metaverse, of course, um, and, and metaverse, which is an actual company spelled M-Y-T-A. Um, verse. So they recently secured $7.6 million in um, funding for their enterprise metaverse platform. So it's very, it's a lot of money um, to be able to secure for something that's pretty intangible. Um, but what they actually did was they created uh, an overall kind of overview for investors about what the metaverse would look like through humanized avatars uh, that actually looked and functioned like the actual investors that were going through their their overall process. Um, so they talked about how really the pandemic was a catalyst for this virtualization, as they call it, um, and opportunities to continue to build out that metaverse, which we all know is think gaming meets social media, right? You're, it's not actually a person in the metaverse. It's more of an avatar or an experience that you can go from, you know, dinner in Japan to lunch in Paris, if you so wanted to. Um, right. So it's, it's just a really interesting um, opportunity to see that there obviously is an incredible appetite for, you know, VC funding or capital within the metaverse space. Uh, and it's fascinating to me that, you know, being involved in these transformation technology solutions um, for not only personal use, but also enterprise use as well. So when we're talking about employees at home, can they engage in some sort of social interaction with 
being fully remote. So to me, it's a little creepy, to be honest, <laughs> on that side. But I wanted to see as a seasoned, um, you know, entrepreneur in the tech space, and you know a lot about investment and venture capital, do you often see this amount of money being placed in something that's so intangible and far from, say, the everyday life of not only the consumer, but also the enterprise? Um, have you ever seen that happen before within any sort of technical space, maybe software and in innovation or anything like that uh, in your experience? Yeah, um, you know, back in the day, back uh, in the late 90s, you saw a lot of it uh, with e-commerce companies, companies yeah. that were not at all profitable. They had questionable business models at best, but yet they had these huge valuations and they had you know, big IPOs and, you know, eventually most of those companies went out of business. So it's an extremely high risk uh, to, to bet on something like that. And, and those were actual companies that had, you know, kind of a tangible business model, may not have been a good or sustainable business model, but, but it was a tangible business model. Metaverse is probably even more, um, or, or I should say Metaverse is even less mature and less defined because there's so much more that's TBD on what the Metaverse is really going to be in the future. So Yes and no, I guess would be my answer. Yes, we've seen lots of irrational bets on stocks and investments and things. And you, you still see it today, too, even outside the metaverse. You see like Uber and, um, you know, all these different tech companies that mm -hmm. haven't turned profit ever, but yet they still have these super high valuations. And I think people are hoping or thinking that it'll be the next Facebook or Amazon or Netflix, you know, these companies that ran in the red for years and years until they finally turn a profit and now they're massive behemoths. So, um, I don't know. It, it's a, I imagine it's a sort of like you're betting, you know, you're, you're betting with high odds. There's a high likelihood you lose, but if it pays out, you're going to, you're going to be rewarded pretty, pretty richly. So it, it comes down to risk reward, I suppose, but yes, I've seen uh, similar trends in the past for sure. Yeah. I think it's just, as a parent of young kids, I'm just absolutely terrified of what I'm going to find them doing in the metaverse or how to like police that. Like it's one thing to do that on social media right now, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's exactly where my mind goes to it. And it's so interesting that they talk about, you know, all of these metaphysical things, which has really meant like supernatural in the past when we talk about metaphysical but it's moved into a more technical space which it couldn't be more you know polar opposite when we talk about it in layman's terms so definitely something that uh is is very interesting but not only that very lucrative in the fact that like you said it really does have a high evaluation and a large appetite for investors as yeah. well yeah absolutely so speaking of betting you know um, I wanted to talk through, <laughs> thank you for that layup there. Um, but so we, we know obviously the, um, casino space gambling, that's a, a big in-person profit. Um, and it, it depends here in the state city by city, you know, countries, there are, um, there's legalities and legislation around being able to gamble and that type of thing. And the interesting part about online gambling is because of the integration with the payment systems. So we're talking about PayPal and other, um, you know, digitally based banking systems. Certain countries cannot intervene when users are playing through those specific applications and receiving um, funds through those affiliate casinos. 
So they've kind of like backed into that throughout their integration or different applications. And the thing that I find so interesting about this is they leave players completely anonymous, even though they're not using cash, the online payment system can separate that virtual currency um, from each casino as well. So just the autonomy of, of the overall technology in the gaming space has caused it you know, to really boost in overall revenue. Um, so I wanted to get your your take on that. Um, obviously, gaming and betting in sports industries and other things have been kind of a, a main transformation to more online in the last few years. But it looks as though the casino industry is has that actual digital pathway, too. Um, so I wanted to see kind of your um, feedback on that or your reaction to it. Yeah, I think that you know, COVID, like you said, COVID fueled a lot of that uh, digitization of gaming and, and gambling. Um, but I think it's also just the fact that it's opened up regulatory um, restrictions have lifted, at, at least here in the United States. Um, it's, it's lifted fairly significantly where you have companies like um, FanDuel and, and uh, DraftKings and even Caesars Palace now has a as an online app for betting. So it's really opened up the the market to a ton of people that wouldn't otherwise go to a casino or go to a place where physical gambling is legal. Now that it's legal, it's not, I don't think it's entirely legal in all 50 states in the United States, but close mm -hmm. to all of them. I think there's just a handful of states that still limit the amount of gambling you can do. Um, so it makes sense, you know, that the companies are doing sort of a land grab here, trying to get as much of a, a market share as possible uh, with this opening up uh, a lot like you know a similar industry similar but different industry a again more in the united states more so than in other parts of the world that we operate but in the united states cannabis has, has become legalized as well and you're seeing something similar there where there's just a ton of money rushing into the cannabis industry because now it's legal and it's this pent-up demand or this restricted demand that's now unleashed and i think it's the same sort of thing in gaming and gambling as well Absolutely. And that, this actually came as a result of here in the States, my family celebrates Easter and my brother and my stepdad were teaching us a new game that they learned in Vegas from March Madness, which is the college basketball tournament, which they go to every single year. And they were telling me how the technology now counts the cards for the dealers like there's machines to do that. Not maybe that's been around for a long time. I'm not a big gambler, so I don't know. But that's what kind of got me down this rabbit hole of what well, wow, there is actually digital innovation involved in gambling. So I, I looked up this study to see kind of what that online space looked like. And as it always does, it shocks me the amount of, of currency and money that goes through um, that area. And of course, those bigger applications like PayPal are, you know, knocking at the door to get involved in that. So just yeah. a little subject that came from the Cheatham dinner table at one time. So if you don't know how to play pie gal, now I am an expert in pie gal. So <laughs> you have to tell me about that sometime. I, I don't fully under, I'm not a gambler at all. Yeah. I play a little bit of roulette, but then I, once I start to lose like 20 or $50, I start to feel nauseous and I break into oh, a yeah. and I have to stop. So Yep. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not a gambler either. And we, we, we didn't gamble, but they taught us like the new game that they have. Cause my family is 
big poker players except for myself but I just was so shocked about all of the technology specifically devices that they have now to um, kind of buck any option to not be truthful when playing the games whether it's the sensors or infrared body temperatures like it's just it's very fascinating the the technology saturation within the gaming casino industry um, and obviously their online saturation as well and reaching out to customers that wouldn't typically be an in-person opportunity so very interesting um, and then the, the last hot topic I, I wanted to talk through today with you Eric was um, this current study of healthcare uh, executives and talking about going through a digital transformation. We talk a lot about healthcare, health tech, um, and their overall digitization over the last couple of years. Um, but what they're dealing with is a backlog of really dirty data that it's struggling to input emerging technologies like AI, which we know only functions with a really solid data foundation. So the survey actually has revealed that 95% of healthcare executives intend to transform their business digitally. However, um, the leaders are saying they're dealing with a crisis related to data. And as a result, 97% are calling for more healthcare data opportunities. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you in obviously being a, a, a seasoned executive in master data management, what do you do when you go into an organization that has a ton of data, like a very large healthcare system, but has no idea how to actually create action plans and strategies from that data? What are some steps or recommendations that you typically would give uh, a business like a big healthcare conglomerate? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is to sort of back up and look at what is it you could be doing with data to, to be, make better decisions and to use predictive analytics and things of that nature. So it's sort of like defining that future state of if we had business intelligence mm -hmm. or predictive analytical tools, then we could do A, B, and C. And this is how we would better service our, our, our patients. Um, so that's the first step. And then you sort of back up and to look at, well, what, where are we at today? What are our limitations? Is the data dirty to your point? Do we need to clean that data? Do we need new tool sets or new technologies that will allow us or enable the uh, enable the, the changes we're trying to go through. And then from there, you create a plan of, well, how are we going to get close that gap between where we are today and where we're going in the future? And usually that entails, you know, data cleanup, data mapping um, to, to new tools, which also leads to uh, evaluating and selecting new tools, whether it's business intelligence tools or predictive analytical tools or enterprise technologies that can mm -hmm. do that and other things or some combination of all the above. So I think that's really the key way to get to that roadmap is to look at where what it is you want and what you could be getting out of your data um, and then backing up and looking at where you are today and then ultimately putting together a roadmap to help you get there. Easier said than done. I've, I've oversimplified the process a bit. That, that is generally what you do. Yeah, your your 60 second recommendation, which is um, fine. You know, I think we'll continue to see a, a lot of a movement in that area and specifically these kind of more niche platforms that pop up to be able to meet these needs of specific industries that now really are in the digital space when they really haven't been in the past. Um, and I know you and um, Nate on our team here are going to talk about a lot of what those really difficult transformations look like from a company side and making sure that you might have data, you might have the most 
beautiful emerging technology that as you've ever seen. But if you don't have a workforce that's ready and clear about where they're going, then there's no way to create an actual action success plan from that or create business value. So I think it's such a great and important fundamental conversation that you and Nate really lay out when it comes to organizational change management. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Nate and change management, we'll have him on the show to talk about change management. We're going to cover a whole host of things related to everything from what is change management, why it's important to how you go about change management, how you get started. Uh, we're actually going to ask, uh, we're going to hear from the audience some specific change challenges that they're facing, and we'll give you some recommendations on that front. So it should be a highly engaging uh, conversation about change management. So we're going to have Nate on the show when we return from a quick break. In the meantime, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find new episodes of this show on any of the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on, including Amazon, Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our next guest, who I'm excited to have on again, he's been on the show before, but it's been a while. It's been a, several episodes since he's been on. His name's Nate Stroher, and he's a practice lead at Third Stage Consulting. He's a change management expert, among other things. And so what we wanted to do is have Nate on the show to talk about some best practices and questions that I have, as well as audience has, about change management. So all that being said, Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to, great to have you. Great to have all the guests here today. And maybe just to start before we dive into the, the consultant hot seat questions I have for you to start, um, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I. I started out after grad school working in De at Deloitte Consulting, worked around uh, for their digital transformation, finance transformation group, worked on a lot of software implementations and change management processes around the implementation of technology. We also worked with a lot of mergers and acquisitions and, um, and organizing and bringing uh, functions together um, through these newly acquired uh, individual organizations. So have a, a fairly technical background, but also have spent about the last 10 years of my career uh, really focusing on change management piece of digital transformation and how <clears throat> the organization can best position itself to take advantage of the new technology or the new opportunities that arise. Great. So just out of curiosity, what, what led you down the path of change management versus any of the other paths you could have gone within the world of consulting and transformation? 
I think mostly it was it was just a, a natural extension, and we we found um, it in the in a, most of our technology implementations, companies were really doing a great job, and and we had a lot of success implementing technology. But it was really that that third stage, the, the little plug for our, our company name. But it was really that that third stage, and it was that missing piece that once you had this great technology in place that you spent a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of money to, to get in place. It was really trying to, to help organizations take advantage of that. It was, it was, uh, we were seeing so many organizations that did all they could to get through to the finish line or what we considered the finish line being the go live. And then only to turn around and say, you know, we've got this great piece of technology, but we really haven't changed our organization or positioned our organization well to take advantage of all the benefits that we knew were there from the beginning that we now have, but we're not equipped to take advantage of. Yeah. So they're implementing technology, but not really getting the full value out of it, not changing their processes and organization in any materially significant way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I use the, I use the analogy often that, that it was, <clears throat> they went out, they did all their homework, they figured out, just exactly what they would need in a new car. They got the new car, got inside, and were not able to drive it. They they knew some of the some of the int- uh, small intricacies, but really weren't able to take advantage of all the new uh, features and all the new technology that they had invested in. Yeah, couldn't get the car out of second gear or whatever analogy you want to use there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess for for those of us that maybe don't fully understand change management or haven't been directly involved, or maybe we've struggled with change management in the past, or we just sort of intuitively know what it is at a high level, maybe just help us understand what, what is change management? How would you, how would you summarize it uh, in terms of what, what it is? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I I actually, in in getting ready for this last night, I went through and Googled change management. And I think it's really interesting. As we were talking about earlier, Eric, there's, there's literally thousands and thousands of definitions. Uh, one of my favorites was um, change management is the application of a structured process and set of tools for leading, pe- leading the people side of change to achieve a desired outcome. Um, I read that only because if you go through and you, you Google change management, you're going to find a whole bunch of different ways to say really the same thing. And that is, how are you going to best position the individuals within an organization to take advantage of the new technology, the new opportunity or whatever it is you're trying to change. And I know we, we often think of change management as uh, around a, a technology implementation, a technology selection, but it's really any, any major change that an organization is going through and it's positioning those people and your organization to best take advantage of that. Yeah, that's well, well put. It's, it's a, it's, it's such a broad topic. Sometimes it's hard just to distill it down to just a real basic introductory summary like you just did. So I appreciate that. That's, that's helpful. Um, so why is that so important, everything you just described? Why is that so important to digital transformation or being successful in a digital transformation? Well, I think, I think it's successful. And, and back to the analogy we just used, it is, um, you know, organizations um, are called third stage consulting and and go through these organizational changes because if whatever they're changing to is is putting them in the best position to achieve their vision and their goals for the future and really or change management is so important because th- there's going to be 
change with any technology implementation or any really any opportunity that you seize as an organization. So uh, it, it's really important because again, it's not only getting the, the technology enablers that you have, but it's really a, being able to take best advantage of those and, and putting the right people in the right place to take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of them. Right. So why is it you think that so many organizations struggle with that? I mean, as you're describing it, it doesn't sound that complicated. It doesn't sound that difficult, but why, why is it that so many organizations do in fact struggle with that? You know, I think probably the main reason that, that organizations struggle with it is, is that when you, when you talk about, and we'll, we'll focus today mostly around technology implementations, but when you talk about a technology implementation, you're, you're coming out of, or you're facing what's going to be probably one of the biggest investments that an organization made. Some of these uh, technology implementations that we have been a part of over the years have, have been into the, the five, $10 million range. And so an organization is not only putting all their resources into that, they're putting a, a ton of their, uh, a ton of cash into it, but they, they're also um, change management is just an unknown. So while it's really easy to, or it's easier to sit down and say, here's how we're going to select a technology. Here's how we're going to implement a technology. Change management's a little more of the, the soft and fuzzy side and where you, you know, there's really, it's not an exact science of how you're going to do it. And organizations really, I think uh, often we find that they're, they're really kind of at that fatigue point where they say, you know, Hey, we're putting everything we, we can into getting this technology in place. We'll worry about change management later, or we'll worry about our people later and how they're best going to be able to take advantage of the technology. Yeah. Or our people will change because we'll tell them to change. That's, that's the other common thing we hear uh, with executives, right. especially you think it can't be that difficult. I'm just going to tell them they have to change. And by the way, they're excited for the change because they don't like their old systems. They don't like the inefficient processes. So how hard could it really be? I think that's a dynamic we see a lot with our clients. Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're actually um, that it's interesting you bring that up because we, we are, uh, we kicked off a client three months ago and they're, we, we talk about, we're constantly talking about the PTSD that they show from an old um, implementation that they did five years ago. And it was, it was just exactly what you said. They, they said, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll the, the leaders of the organization said technology wise, we will get this put in and we will do this very well. People will learn to change. They'll learn to adapt. They'll learn to take advantage of the technology. There was really no end user input or no, um, you know, no focus on the change management. So literally it was, it was, it's been described to us over and over again as January 1st, they came in, turned their computers on and it was the mentality of get on your computer, learn how to use the system. You're going to be so much better off. This will be a great thing. When really in reality, they had never, they had never done anything before that to get them to the point where they're going to be able to take advantage of what they had in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a lot of a lot of times project teams that are involved in, in sort of the day to day components of a of a transformation project, whether it's the design or the testing or the whatever aspect of a, of a transformation. And they I think a lot of times people forget to empathize with people that aren't involved in the day to day. You know, you, you have a small group of people that are the project core team or even the subject matter experts that are supporting a project. And I think a lot of times it seems like those team members 
don't realize how far ahead they are because they're involved in the project day to day. They understand the changes, but then when it gets rolled out to the rest of the organization, it's sort of shocked to the system and it's a surprise to everyone. And that's the last thing you want is a big surprise, you know, it go live. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll get back to my questions here in a few minutes, but uh, first I want to turn to the audience here because we're already getting some, some good questions that they're worth talking about here. But uh, before I get to those questions, I just want to thank everyone for dropping the chat where you're from today. We've got people from all over the world, um, Columbia in South America, a uh, couple people people from Denver in Parker, Colorado, uh, against Belgium, Evergreen, Colorado, uh, Netherlands, Minnesota, um, Mali in West Africa, Calgary, Canada, UAE, Georgia, a lot of different uh, UK. So a lot of different places throughout the world. I think we cover just about every continent here. Um, so appreciate everyone joining, especially at odd hours for some of you uh, here today. So the first question from the audience that I want to get to, which is from Ray um, on LinkedIn, who's actually a, a past client of mine from back way, way back when, before um, I started third stage. Um, but he asked the question here, uh, do you use ADCAR? Um, but before you answer that, um, Nate, maybe, you know, if you could describe just at, at a high level um, without getting into super, a ton of detail, just what, what is ADCAR? Maybe we'll start there and then ask, uh, you know, how, how, maybe I'll sort of shift the question a little bit to how does ADCAR fit into to change management? And, and I think, uh, Ray, you're, you're referring to the, the Prosky ADCAR model. Um, and I think I would say that while we don't use that specifically, I think um, so, somewhat what I alluded to earlier is all of the different methodologies that we use are, are all of the different methodologies in use. And specifically what we use is probably a slight variation of that, but it's really um, kind of along the same lines. And it, and it really is coming in and... Um, and uh, and determining just exactly where an organization is, and it, it starts with the kind of the org readiness. Um, what is the what is the vision of the organization, and and really that first starting point is the is the critical piece. That is, where are we now, and where do we think we're going, and how will this technology change enable us to get to where we're going? Um, that's that's real important, and that's that's a step I think we struggle with with. Uh, almost every one of our clients is, is that, that thought of, Hey, we're all on the same page. We all know where we're going. And then when you really sit down and you get the executives in a room and say, okay, let's get all 12 of you to define exactly where you're going. What starts out as a, as a one or two hour workshop can often turn into a whole day workshop of really trying to figure out where are we now, where are we going and how will this technology enable us? So that's really the starting point. And then it's, and then it really jumps right into um, determining how ready an organization is, the organizational readiness for this change. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of our uh, team members are uh, ProSci certified and, and use variations of, of the ADCAR methodology. So um, it's, it's good to kind of unpack that a bit more. And it, I always like to talk about the way you just did, Nate, in terms of not so much the methodology itself, but just conceptually, you know, how does it work and how does it apply to, to change management? Um, here's another interesting question. I'd be curious to get your feedback on and whoops, we just lost our, our feed here. There you are. You're back. Yeah. Um, so here's, a, here's another question that uh, is a really interesting one. And I think this is a, a awesome question that uh, applies to a lot of different situations. But in this case, the question is how to manage, how do you manage change management in institutions that are non-flexible such as the military. And that's from uh, Gustavo on LinkedIn. 
So, you know, whether it's the military or maybe a, a well-established, mature organization that's been around forever, has highly tenured employees or for whatever reason, and, you know, they're a little bit more resistant to change or difficult to change. How do you how do you manage those situations differently or do you manage those situations differently than than other less resistant cultures? Yeah, and I think that that's that's a, a difficult question because I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. But I think really um, it, it really starts at the beginning of when you're when you're talking about any change. And again, we're usually brought in with a with a software selection or a platform selection that we're helping an organization with. So really starting right at the beginning of those conversations and trying to draw out from the organization, where, where do you stand? How, you know, what have your failures in the past been? Um, why, why are you choosing to get this new technology now? And really including this change management piece from the beginning and to sit down and say, you know, we, we understand that, that you have these technology challenges but really what, what beyond that is, you know, when you look at the three pieces, people, process, and technology, we've established the technology piece. Now let's look at where you are from a people and a process point of view and really just starting that from the beginning. And again, not a one size fits all because it, every organization is different and, and uh, every organization is going to be uh, resistant to change in a different way. Yeah, and it's you mentioned the organizational readiness um, assessments that we do for clients a, a few minutes ago, and that's why that piece is so important is because you have to understand not only the fact that an organization is more resistant to change than maybe other organizations, but more importantly, you have to understand why. You know, why are they resistant to change? Is it because the the employees have been around forever? Uh, maybe the employees don't have the right skill set. Um, maybe there's a lack of leadership or a lack of communication that sort of creates a difficulty navigating change as an organization. So once you understand those root causes or sort of what are the, the cultural nuances of that organization, then you can attack it. You know, then you can go after from a change management perspective and attack those root causes that are specific to that organization. Um, so I think that's a, it's a good point and sort of a good, a good reminder that as, as helpful as change management methodologies and tool sets are, they need to be applied differently depending on what, what the situation is and what you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. Uh, it also begs a question too, you know, this isn't part of the question necessarily, but maybe I'll just sort of add on to it. What about, um, you know, there's organizations that struggle with change more than others. I mean, I think every organization in general is a broad generalization struggles with change as much as we like to think our organization maybe is a little bit more open than others. The reality is change management and, and the change process is more difficult than most people realize until they go through it. Um, but I think the other thing to think about from a change management perspective is how much are you willing to change as an organization? I think you have to be honest with yourself. And I think that's where a lot of companies get into trouble is they say, you know, we're, we're working off of an old green screen legacy system now, and we want to go to a fully baked, um, you know, cloud solution with um, analytics and all this, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all this advanced technology. And that's a huge jump. And that's okay, but you've got to be ready to recognize that, that that is a huge jump and there's a there's a high risk from a change management perspective. And then also on the flip side, also recognize that you can also, it's okay to take more incremental steps. I mean, if it's if you're risk adverse or you recognize that your company or your organization is going to have difficulty changing, like if you're part of the military or the government or whatever the case may be, then maybe you just take more of an incremental approach over time. And I think that's what a lot of organizations fail to do is align, you know, the general strategy with who they are as an organization. Um, have you seen that as well? Or is that? Yeah. Right? And that, 
that's a great, sorry to catch you off, but that, that's, a, <clears throat> that's exactly what we're going through with, uh, we have a, a large manufacturer um, in Texas and Colorado. They have facilities in both states. They're, they're very, very heavily paper-based. I, I would say they're one of the, this organization is probably more run on Excel spreadsheets and paper than any I've ever seen throughout my career. Um, the, the one thing that the message we've been delivering to them from the beginning is that that you really need to take baby steps like you you will have eventually you will have technology that will make your organization run seamlessly from beginning to end. However, if you go through and you throw uh, most of your employees that are used to working off spreadsheets off or off uh, a paper routing system throughout the manufacturing process, and you throw them right into all the functionality that the new software offers, you're, you're going you're gonna to overload them. They're, so we're really saying, you know, get the system in place, make sure that the employees are, are good with and comfortable with the basic functionality, and then start to build the system up from there. Then start to really get to what the overall capabilities of the system are. But if you do it all at once, you're taking people that are really not very computer savvy, not comfortable with a computer, and you're just gonna you're just gonna flood them right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a good point. I think it's a good reminder that there's a prerequisite to successful change management. In in other words, there's certain foundational alignment sorts of things that need to happen before you can be successful in change management. And we see this a lot where the the overall transformation strategy or the digital strategy and the magnitude of change a company is trying to go through, it's too great. And you're setting your change management team up for failure. Um, it's a, or, or the magnitude of change is expected to happen in, in too compressed of a time frame, And so, you know, that creates even more resistance to change and more change management issues. And so you have to make sure you've got a realistic strategy to begin with, or else no matter how good your change team is, you're not going to be able to navigate that change well. So I think that's a good reminder that it starts really early in the process to make sure you've got a good alignment and a, and a clear strategy. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Nate talking about change management. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. We're here chatting with Nate Storer about organizational change management best practices. This this question here from Raphael on LinkedIn uh, was a good one, sort of building on a point you made earlier, Nate, about determining organizational readiness. How do you how do you determine organizational readiness? Is there a measuring stick? What, what do you have to say to that? 
You know, I <clears throat> whereas I don't think there's quite a measuring uh, stick, but I think I, I think how how we at third stage <clears throat> determine organizational readiness is we'll go out, we'll meet with <clears throat> all the different end user groups, and it's really um, through surveys, through workshops, and through meeting with them, determining what their requirements are. It really gives us a, a an opportunity to go through and determine what are, are basically what I'll call like the general change themes. And then within those, each organi each organization within or each function within the organization is going to be in a different spot. So for example, we have a, we have a client right now um, and there we've looked at, we've broken down all the different functions, finance, manufacturing, sales and marketing. And every, everyone is going to be, you know, face the same change themes, but it's going to be different. Finance is really going to experience not a lot of change. They're going to have some minor changes in the way they, they um, deal with the system, some of the terminology they use. They won't have that big of a change. But the, the sales and marketing team is facing a whole new set of functionality. So um, they're really going to be where we're going to be focusing most of our efforts, and that is getting the right people in place, getting them trained, putting the new skill sets in place to take advantage of the technology. So I would say that that while there's not a measuring stick, we do try and come up with the common change themes and then really dig into each division or each function within the organization to find out just exactly who needs what degree of um, help throughout this change process. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times if, you know, if there, if there is a quote unquote measuring stick, a lot of times that you're measuring those different, uh, the readiness of different parts of your organization. So you might find that there's certain departments or there's certain locations within your organization that are going to resist the change or, and, and when we talk about resistance to change, by the way, let me just back up. We talk about resistance to change. Usually it's not intentional resistance. Usually there's other things that are driving the resistance. It's not that I want to sabotage the project. That's not why I resist change. I resist change because I, I'm afraid of the change. And I feel like my job's jeopardized or my value to the organization is being jeopardized. So I'm going to unintentionally and maybe subtly um, resist that change. But a lot of times you find that certain parts of the organization are more resistant or have more are going to have more difficulty adapting to the change than, than others. And so that's one sort of measuring stick. And then, you know, we, we as consultants, oftentimes, almost always will compare an organization or a client to other clients, you know certain ones are more or less resistant than others. And that kind of gives you a, a qualitative measuring stick, if you will, in many ways, even though our organizational readiness is quantitative and qualitative in nature, um, you still have to add that sort of the art to it of, of understanding how, how different organizations operate. Um, what about, uh, here's an interesting uh, question that uh, I really like, and I'm going to add to it a little bit. I hope you guys don't mind that I'm, I'm spinning the questions a little bit, but um, the question is, can you, sh this is from Ty on LinkedIn. Yes. Can you share a couple of examples of how in-house change management teams have overcome the challenge of being brought into engagements late in the change process? Before we answer that, though, maybe you could just talk about what happens or what's the common dynamic when change management teams come into the process too late. You know, you wait till right before training, let's just say you bring in the change team to come train people on, on the software. You know, what are some of the consequences of bringing in change teams late? And then we can kind of get back to Ty's question here. Well, I think, and, and this is a, a, a very timely example because uh, the, the client that I mentioned that we just kicked off, we're being brought in um, about uh, halfway through an implementation. So we're, we're experiencing this right now. And I, 
the the phrase that that we keep using is we're we're learning to fly the plane while it's in the air. But um, I think that the, the the really important thing to note and what we've stressed with our client throughout is it's it's never too late to 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 be get engaged and and really. Um, what we're doing with this client is is coming in and saying, okay, <clears throat> we this is how our normal engagement would be, normal change management engagement would proceed, and um, laying out, okay, you know, from beginning to end, this would normally be say a nine month process, and here's the steps we would take. Then we sit down and we assess, okay, we're here, so we're you know we're joining about four months into it, and we have these four months to make up. But I think it's it's really taking a step back and and going through the process or or following the process from beginning to end to to make sure that again we go back to what's our vision, how ready is the organization for change, and what do those change elements that need to be put in place? What are those, and how do we put those in place? So again, it, it's not abandoning the process, but it's really going back and saying. Let's take a realistic approach on where we are now, what we need to do to make up, all while um, you know staying current with what we have now. And it, it's a it's a delicate balance, and mm-hmm. and we're you know we struggle every day with it, trying to say okay, you know we need to to keep moving forward, but we also need to make up um, these steps in the past because they're all very important towards that that ultimate goal. Right. Yeah, that's a good a good real life current case study. Of, of a current client to, that where we're experiencing that exact same dynamic. And, you know, fortunately it's not, you know, it's, it's never too late, but it certainly makes it more challenging as, as you defer, as you delay the change management process and maybe taking your example, Nate, to, to a more extreme, um, I'll call it a hypothetical example, although we've seen this a million times before, but this, the organization that waits even longer and says, okay, training starts here in a few weeks. Let's go ahead and bring in the change management team to start getting ready for training the, the end users. And this is something we see a lot, a, a ton with software vendors and big system integrators. They say they're going to do change management and they do do a little bit of change management, but their definition of change management is coming and train people on the software. So you end up by definition, you're doing change management late in the process and in Again, I don't want to say it's too late. It's never too late, but things are really difficult when you wait that long. And what you end up seeing is that you end up really focusing on change management for the first time, you know, aside from maybe a few project newsletters and all employee updates on, hey, exciting news about the system and we're going live on this date. You know, I'm not counting that as change management right now, even though that is technically change management. But the real substantive change management, you know, in this case, if they don't start till training, then what happens is people have their freak out moments during, during go live or pre go live training. And you're just days or weeks from go live. And now you're, you're springing all these changes on people and it's just too much for the organization to absorb. And so therefore, you know, that's where things uh, get off track or the wheels come off the, the train, so to speak, when, when you wait that long. So I think that's, you know, I'm giving you a, maybe a more extreme, but common example of what happens when you wait too long. But I think the way you put it, I think that's a common dynamic too, is just trying to figure out how we, how we navigate that. You know, even if we start a bit later than we'd like, is it ever too early to start change management? Have you seen organizations that, that started it too early and it's just a waste of time? No, I, I don't think it, it is, but I, I think it's, um, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's again, important if, if you do start early and there's, there's a ton of advantages um, to starting early. In fact, we have a client who's not even, 
um, they've selected their technology and they're not going to start implementing for another two and a half months. But we've we've actually started them on some of the some of the change management concepts. And so I think it's it's important if you do start early, take advantage of the, the fact that you've got that extra time, but really, again, follow the process. And um, for this client, some of the things that we're um, working with them now is to say, <clears throat> you know, we we're not 100% sure exactly what your ultimate technology solution is going to look like. We know the software, we know the platform, but we do know that you have 25 years of old data that you need to clean up. We have um, we have training programs that have been implemented in the past that have uh, kind of fluttered and and um, have never really taken shape. So let's go through and really um, determine how you're what your training strategy is and how you're going to train your employees. So there's a lot of those things that we can say, you know, this is, this has nothing to do with our ultimate technology solution, but we know that these are some things that you have to address no matter where you're going. So again, it's, it's sticking to that process. You could just take some of the steps and, and um, scoot them up to the, the beginning and do those while you're waiting for that ultimate technology solution. And then you can just follow the process seamlessly from there. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd love to meet a client someday that says, hey, you know, one of my biggest mistakes I made in this project is I started change management too early or I did too much change management. I haven't yeah. met anyone that's coming or close to saying that, but have you? <laughs> I'm just curious. No. <laughs> Not at all. I'd love to meet that person. If any of you on the listening to the live stream here today feel like you've had a situation where you've invested too much in change management or you started it too early, uh, please drop it in the chat. I'd love to, I'd love to hear this case study because I'm, I'm dying to meet that person, that one organization that just overdid it with change management. They regret spending too much time and money on change management. I would argue that that organization probably doesn't exist, but uh, it'd be awesome if, if it did, then let us know. Um, okay. So um, a couple, uh, this is just more of a note uh, from our, our marketing team at third stage. Um, they make a comment here that last week's episode of the Digital Stratosphere podcast discusses company culture and its role in organizational change management. So if you don't already, um, if you go to YouTube or any, if you go to Third Stage's YouTube channel or any of the podcast platforms, you can find Digital Stratosphere, which is uh, a sister podcast to the one that that uh, the long form podcast that I host, which is Transformation Ground Control. Um, so anyway, if you go to that um, podcast, you can find the episode with, with uh, company culture. Um, here's an interesting question, Nate, from Marco on LinkedIn, and I'll see if I can show the whole question here uh, on the screen for those of you watching. Um, how do the more agile approaches and ERP implementations currently impact the change journey and phasing? Only positive or also negative impacts possible. So maybe you just kind of broaden that a bit, or maybe I'll try to rephrase it. Um, agile, fast, agile approaches to, or I shouldn't say fast, faster or perceived faster approaches to change to uh, ERP implementations or digital transformation. Um, how does that affect the change journey in general? I mean, do you see agile affecting change management or what are your thoughts there? Well, I think it, it, it doesn't change the overall change management process, but I think the one advantage that you have with the agile type implementation methodologies or these, you know, more of the, the quick uh, instantaneous, um, methodologies is that that you are able to take advantage of some of the lessons of, well not some you're, you're able to take advantage of the lessons learned earlier on so the, the the nice advantage of it and we again have had clients that 
have used the agile um, implementation methodology and it, it really gives us uh, a quick snapshot throughout the process of this works here's how we can adjust our our training here's how we can adjust adapting our skill sets so in some ways um, i would say it doesn't change it at all in other ways i think that the real advantage is you have the opportunity to to learn to learn from from what you're doing in that in that uh that agile um, implementation. The one thing you do have to be careful of, though, is that you're really, you know, coming at the whole overall implementation process in little, uh, whatever we'd say, four to six week chunks. So you, you've got to make sure that you you look at here's the overall change change management process and not get really wrapped up in the the flavor of the day or the implementation of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, the beauty of agile is that it, it encourages teams to move fast and to do sprints and to, and to prove value faster. So you're not waiting years to get some sort of value out of, out of an implementation or out of a transformation. But the, the risk is from a change management perspective, the risk is that in the name of getting technology rolled out faster, you're, you're bypassing, oftentimes you're bypassing some of those change management, um, activities and not only the activities, but the organization itself doesn't fully understand what the impact of the organization is going to be. So while agile on one hand allows you to roll out things quickly in sprints and, and sort of uh, minimum viable products and you learn from it and you pivot and you, you, you improve it. That's great. But the change, if you're a change team, that's, that's like a moving target. You're trying to figure out like, what, what is this technology? What's the impact? How, how are jobs going to be affected? And that's a big problem that people don't often talk about with Agile. They, they think they focus on the technology and the speed of rolling out technology, but they don't look at the consequences of, of the organizational change piece. So I'd, I'd argue there's some pretty significant risk there that are often overlooked. And, and I think to, to add on to what you're saying, Eric, and, and a, um, training is, is a, such a, a point example, is that you, there's, there's certain functionality you obviously have to, to treat train the end user on as the sprints um, as you come to the end of a sprint so that there's that that balance between what's your overall training strategy and how are you going to keep employees current throughout the the life of the software but also um, you know what we would say is what what do they need to do today to be able to get on the system and make it functional and then what's that overall strategy and those are often two different things and so if you lose sight of one for the other you can really get into a pickle because you can train a lot of employees. They'll be, they'll get on the system. They'll be able to use it, but they'll never really go through that whole training process of, of really being able to take advantage of what's the full functionality of the system. They'll just be able to get on, use the system, do their day-to-day -day job, but never really take advantage of, of what it's capable of. Right. Yeah. Well said. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Nate talking about change management you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see 
replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. We're here chatting with Nate Storer about organizational change management best practices. Here's a couple of comments, just more, more interesting uh, context or additions to what you said already, Nate. Um, but this is from uh, uh, Juiced, Juiced or Used. I'm, I apologize. I'm not sure how, how to pronounce your name. I should because he, uh, he and I have been connected forever and he engages with me all the time on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's Used. But if I mispronounce that, please correct me. Um, but anyway, uh, change management sh- should start at the point of let's look at a new system. That's his two cents. Um, <laughs> would you agree with that? I think that's sort of like what you were saying is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of times uh, it, it almost sounds counterintuitive. I, I totally agree with the comment, by the way, but it sounds counterintuitive oftentimes to project teams and executives because they think, well, how can we start change management? We don't even know what the technology is. Well, it, you can, there's a lot you could do. You should be doing to set the foundation, just to understand your current organization, the processes and understanding where you're starting from and how big of a jump that's going to be back to what we were talking about before. Um, and then Lulu on YouTube uh, made the comment that I think I started late. So we were talking about earlier about you start early, do you start late um, on time or whatever. Um, so it sounds like she, she uh, unfortunately feels like she started late. I'd be curious to hear more Lulu if you're, if you're uh, so inclined, any, any, uh, anything you're noticing, you know, in your project so far from, from starting late, any, any change issues you're experiencing or concerns you have that might help us uh, maybe unpack that a bit more uh, and maybe use that as a discussion point. Um, here's an interesting point that I think is a really good one, a really good basic fundamental change management concept. And this is from Albert on LinkedIn. He says, for for changes, for change management, please remember your colleagues are always asking what's in it for me or with them. Uh, you need to get their buy-in. So what are your, what are your thoughts there, Nate? Well, I think, you know, I think it's, it's um, again, uh, sitting down and when, when you talk about what's in it for me, um, kind of going back to that, that first point, and that is where, where do you, where do you see your organization as part of the, uh, or your, your function as part of the overall organization? Where do you see them now and where do you see them in the future and how will this technology um how, how will this technology enable you to get to where you want to be? And then it's, and then it's really sitting down and saying, when you say what's in it for me, it's um, how, where are you now and how capable do you realistically think you are towards taking advantage of that technology? And if, a, if, a, if individuals within the organization are, are honest and, and really do a good job of sitting down and saying where they are, they'll, they'll realize that, that there are, there is need for change. Again, we kind of, I go back to the, the, the client that we're talking about that's very paper-based. 
they know that, you know, that as they grow, that there's, there's two solutions to um, taking advantage of this growth that they're, they're encountering. And that is either work 12 hours a day, 15 hours a day to try and keep up with the demand or automate and, and, you know, get, get into a new technology that will enable them to do their job better, smarter, and faster. So it's really, you know, it's again, probably not a real, um, concise answer, but it really is trying to show them as much as possible. Here's the advantages and realistically how capable or how ready are you to take advantage of, of what this new platform will uh, enable you to do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, just going through the questions and comments here, Nate, uh, since this is a consultant hot seat format, I have to show you this uh, comment because, uh, it, it may embarrass you a little bit, uh, just knowing your personality, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so this is from Mitch on LinkedIn. Um, he says, high praise for Nate and his knowledge and expertise within the digital transformation and change management domain can speak from firsthand experience, the value he brings to the table. So kudos to you, Nate. We've got, you've got a fan here, uh, Thanks, listening, <laughs> listening live. So thank you, Mitch, for the, for the kind words there. That's very kind. I, I agree with you, by the way, Mitch, uh, Nate is very knowledgeable on this stuff and very good at it. Um, so here's a question. Where was it? Okay. Here's the question I want to get to, which, um, again, I'm going to add maybe my own spin to it here. Uh, and this is from Jude on YouTube. Uh, Jude says, what's the ideal change management approach for Microsoft 365 rollouts, uh, Microsoft rollouts of updates for its products that improve collaboration and productivity of employees. The reason I like this question is not so much that it's focused just on Microsoft 365, but it's maybe a broader question. I think you sort of alluded to this earlier, Nate, but maybe we could go back to this point. But whether or not the technology or the specific type of technology you're rolling out, does that affect the organizational change approach that you take? Is it is it universal across different platforms? Or, or is there something you would do different for something as fundamental as a Microsoft 365 rollout that affects everyone in an organization? Or kind of what would you say to that? You know, I think that I think the answer is a little bit of both. And I think that it really um, be it Microsoft 365, uh, Epicor, Oracle, whatever, whatever implementation you have. I think what's really more important is what what level of change that introduces to the organization. So, again, if you're um, the, the, the Microsoft, I, I think Microsoft has one advantage in the sense that that we all use a lot of our. Um, window-based programs in our daily job, no matter what our ERP package is in, in the background. So Microsoft has a very comfortable look and feel, which is, which is one advantage of that product. But I think, I think really more importantly um, is to look at what, what's, the, what's the degree of change and how is someone's job going to change um, uh, from a day-to-day -day basis. And again, alluding back to our client earlier, if you're going from <clears throat> a paper-based um, method are you know if you're going from really a paper-based function to really automating the entire process that's going to be a major change no matter what technology you put in place so i think it's really more importantly more important not to look at the technology but to look at what's the overall change that's that, that's going to take place and then really figuring out um, within those software packages or those platforms that you're implementing what, what are the basic functionality steps and, and how can you take these interim steps to really make the user comfortable 
and then expand comfortable and then expand so that you just don't overwhelm them. But you're able to, to take those baby steps and say, oh, now I know how to do this. I'm comfortable with it. Now I can expand to keep going further and further into where the ultimate technology is able to, to um, help you do your job on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of what it comes down to, too, I think, is, is um, fully defining how you're going to use that technology, whether it's Microsoft 365 or any other product. How are you going to use that or how is the organization going to use that? And so that you can sort of target the change management to ensure that you're not just getting by or you're not ensuring the employees can just get by and do the bare minimum, you know, without disrupting their day to day jobs, but that they're actually using the technology in a way that's meant to improve, uh, improve the operations. And sometimes with um, with cloud deployments, you know, with something like a Microsoft 365 or any other sort of cloud based solution, a lot of times it, it's hard to know, you know, what the functions and capabilities are because it's changing all the time. And so taking that time, you know, back to the agile versus waterfall discussion earlier, you know, it's, it's a little bit, some might view this a little bit too waterfall ish to do this, but if you take that time up front to define, what is it, what capabilities are we trying to get out of the system? How's it going to affect our processes and how, then how's it going to affect our people? The more you can do that, the better you can do at change management. So that it's sort of a case to maybe moving the needle a little bit back towards waterfall and in a way from agile in some ways. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's the key, in my opinion, is really defining that future state so that you know how Microsoft 365 or whatever the product is, is going to be used. And, and I think to, to, to just elaborate a little more on that before we move on, uh, the, the, the example I always love to give is, is around reporting and analytics. And, and with, with organizations, you, you traditionally come in and they say, okay, we have anywhere from 50 to 100 standard reports um, or and ways that we analyze our business and really <clears throat> stepping back and saying, you know, ultimately your goal is to have all of your analytics or your dashboard available to you on your phone so that you can run your business from anywhere in the world. And um, but but then stepping back and saying, OK, well, to, in order to get there, we can't do that today. But what we can do is, is step back and and look at. What are the standard reports? What are the standard dashboards that we can put in place now and allow them to get comfortable with that, get comfortable using that um, and, and really trying to set that stage for, OK, now I know what's what's possible. Now I know how to use the technology. Now I can keep expanding and moving closer and closer to that ultimate goal that might not happen for three months, six months, 12 months down the road, but really ultimately getting them there without having um, without losing sight of what's going on by overloading them at the beginning. Right. Right. And I want to come back to Lulu who made the comment earlier about how, um, they feel like they're starting too early. Their, their organization feels like they're starting or they're starting too late. I'm sorry. They're, they're not that, they're not that, uh, unicorn that I've been looking for, which is the company that started too early. This is one that started too late. And so, um, Lulu makes the comment here that I feel like I'm trying to hurry and catch up. And I really don't know what I'm going for, but knowing there's something there, sorry, just trying to take things in. So, you know, if you have a situation like this where, you know, maybe you're listening today, maybe someone in the audience, including Lulu and others are listening today and say, hey, wow, I haven't done anything yet. And I'm probably too late or I, I should have started this a long time earlier. What do you recommend? Like, how do you um, how do you prioritize, you know, sort of that low hanging fruit of the, the, the must haves, you know, the stuff you really should focus on knowing that you're not going to get to it all, knowing that it's not an ideal situation, but that's 
those are the cards you've been dealt. That's that's the situation. You can't change the current situation. So what do you what do you do in cases like that? Or what do you recommend to Lulu or others that are in that same boat? Really, I, the, the, ult, the ultimate starting point, no matter where you are, is just getting a, a true and a realistic assessment of where you are. So it's it's meeting with the end users and meeting with the executive team and saying, where do we want to go and where do we feel we are today? And, and that is, um, again, I'll allude to this client that we're working with. It's sitting down with the end users and sitting down with the different functions and saying, how well do you feel like you've been heard in these requirements gathering sessions? How, how much input have you had into this ultimate technology solution? Where do you think you're going um, from an organ or from a function point of view to support the overall organization in the future? So it's, it's really sitting down and, and just kind of drawing that line in the sand of where we are and, and how equipped we are or how ready we are for the change going forward. And, and then really saying, okay, we're, you know, on, on this overall project change management implementation or change management initiative, we're, we're three steps down when we should be at step five based on our timeline and really just getting that, that realistic example or realistic assessment of where we are and then what those steps are, not only to, to start moving forward, but to make up the, the first three steps that you haven't done. So it's, it's again, never too late, but it's, it's really, it's a difficult step, but it really is sitting down and just saying realistically, where are we and, and how ready are we for the change? And do we know what the change needs to be and do we know what we want in the future? Yeah. Yeah. That's well, well put. And a lot of the work we do at third stage is uh, unfortunately is, is project recovery, you know, things that are either a project has gotten off track or it's, it's headed in the wrong direction or it's completely failed and we get hired to come in and sort of have a SWAT team come in and fix it basically. And, and one of the things we find from a change management perspective is really, really two things or two major buckets of recommendation. I would add to what you said, Nate is one is you, you mentioned the assessment kind of understanding where they're at, but, but also prioritizing and understanding where the biggest change risks are. You know, if there's certain groups within the organization that are particularly vulnerable to resistance to change or, their buy-in is particularly important. And if we don't get that right, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. So that helps you prioritize and say, okay, if we're going to go attack a certain problem or area, let's prioritize. We can't boil the ocean. Times, you know, too much time has gone by. We're not going to be able to do a, a full-blown proper, you know, comprehensive change management plan, but we can go in and, and sort of prioritize and really attack those areas that are either the biggest risks or the biggest uh, opportunity to improve in a short period. The other thing, and this is probably the less popular option, but I think more organizations should really be honest with themselves and ask themselves this, is instead of saying, how do we force fit change management into this time frame, this, li this limited amount of time we have left, maybe you say, we're not going to do that. We're going to actually push out the go live. We're going to take longer to do this. We're going to tell our system integrator, our software vendor to slow, you know, slow their role. They're, we're going to go to a slower burn rate with them. We're going to cut back their team and we're going to redirect some of those resources to change management. Um, people don't like talking about that, partly because the system integrators put an enormous pressure on you not to do that because it affects their cash, you know, their revenue. And they want you, they just want you up and running on technology as fast as possible, regardless of what business value you do or don't get out of it. So more organizations, I think, in my opinion, have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, this is my organization. This is my business. I'm going to do what's right for me. And that may entail doing the unpopular decision of pushing out a go live and saying, 
we're not going to go live in three months or whatever it is. We're going to go live in nine months and we're going to give ourselves that extra time to really get this change management stuff right. Make sure we've got a clear, clearly defined business processes, all that stuff. Because chances are, if you're running late on change management, there's probably a lot of other things you're probably not, you haven't gotten to as well. Uh, It's usually not just a change management delay or a change management uh, coming in too late. It's usually, oh yeah, we haven't done, you know, we're behind on testing, we're behind on all this other stuff. So you really want to look at that realistically and say, is that worth the risk? Because you have to, you have to quantify that and say, if we completely disrupt our operations and we can't ship product or we can't service our customers, that's a huge cost to us potentially. So let's, let's get that right. So anyway, that's, I just add that to to your comments there, Nate. Um, So I guess maybe just to sort of um, wrap this all up and sort of bring it all full circle. um, If, if an organization is either midstream in a transformation or they're about to start a transformation in their early in the process, regardless of where they are, how do you recommend that project teams get started at the change management process? What are some things they could start doing today, you know, from a change management perspective? I, I think the, the most important is, is to um, actually the, the number one step is, is really sitting down and defining and assembling the right team. And that is making sure you have the right representation starting at the executive level all the way down. So, um, you know, it's often overused phrase, and I think a lot of people use it without thinking about it, but it's really figuring out who are the best change agents going forward. And that doesn't have to be the person that's the smartest technology wise, but it's really, it's really getting that team together from a leadership point of view and from a functional point of view of the, the people that are going to be most important to help you drive the change forward, people that use the system on a daily basis, people that understand the business, understand where their function fits into the entire organization, and it's putting together that team. <clears throat> I think the second the, the often overlooked piece is communication, and it's really sitting down and, and developing a method of communicating with the team and with the organization as a whole. And while I think it often has the wrong sound when we say control the message and deliver the message how you want it, I think it's very important to sit down and let people know where you are, where you're going, and to communicate with them regularly and, and, and get, you know, take care of the fact or take control of the message so people know here's where we are and here's where we're going and here's how we're going to get there. And then I think third and, and final step is again, really sitting down and being realistic on where we are and not, <clears throat> not sugarcoating it, not, you know, not saying, well, we think we're here or we think we could get here. Just sit down and say, where are we? And if you're in a, um, you know, as, as bad of a position as you are, the more realistic you are in realizing where you, where you are and where you want to be, the more you're going to increase your chances for success, the more you're going to put yourself in a better position to succeed in the future. All right. Thanks, Nate. That's good stuff. Thanks for being here today. A lot of great conversation, a lot of great questions from the audience too. So thank you for for those questions. Uh, In fact, there's so many good things we talked about and so many good points that Nate brought up. We're going to unpack that a bit. Kyler and I will unpack that a bit when we return from a break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies. 
define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, YouTube. And you can also find us every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms as well, whether it be Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, Google, Apple, whatever it is. So be sure to check us out there. So we just had Nate on the show, and we had a fairly broad-reaching conversation about change management. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, great conversation. I think that's uh, a really great overview of all things change management from really top line, what is it? And then some more tactical um, approaches in detail. Uh, one of the things that I always find fascinating, especially when we do change management uh, live streams, is a lot of people are placing different methodologies in there and asking, you know, does this work? Does this work? Do you do this? Do you do that? And we always answer the way that we did that we do like it it depends and i think a lot of people miss that organizational readiness piece of it and really understanding that that is a match to the dna of the organization so that you would have a different approach if you had a really non-flexible organization or inflexible i should say or if you had you know a culture of entrepreneurial innovation um, those two change plans would be incredibly different and a lot of times those methodologies or cookie cutter approaches forget the importance of identifying the specific nuances of the organization yeah yeah i totally agree and if there's you know the one thing that i i'd say that you could cookie cutter or create a boilerplate approach for it would be that organizational readiness assessment. Mm -hmm. That's something you could, we can pretty confidently say to most, if not all clients we work with, we need to do an organizational readiness assessment to figure out what our change strategy is, which is going to be based on what we learned during that readiness assessment about the client's culture, what they're trying to be when they grow up, um, what some of the uh, pockets of resistance might originate from, you know, if there's poor communication or uh, perceived poor leadership or you know, lack of collaboration, working in silos, things like that can all create different forms of resistance to change or, or different forms of difficulty in changing. So that organizational readiness assessment is the one commonality, but where you go from there is highly dependent on, you know, the unique findings from that, that assessment. And I know that assessment just from, you know, my peers here at the third stage often showcase the need for change management. It can also be a tool to show our our clients, hey, hey this, is, this is a great opportunity or needs to be included in order for your transference or your digital transformation to be successful. So I wonder, um, I wanted to ask you, when you actually show the results to project stakeholders, are they often surprised at these types of organizational readiness assessments? Yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of times 
the same client will see some things from the readout and from our findings and recommendations that are not a surprise. It sort of validates their gut instincts or mm-hmm. what they've heard or some of the chatter within the organization. But that those same organizations oftentimes will be surprised by other things, you know, things that their perception doesn't match up with the rest of the organization, especially when you're talking at, in an executive leadership level. Right. A lot of times they think that, you know, the communication is, is communication and collaboration are both prominent within our organization, but then you do the organizational readiness assessment and it turns out it's not. And it could be that the leadership team wants there to be more collaborative. Hint is there, but it's not for whatever reason, the perception isn't trickling down to the rest of the organization. So just that sort of uh, reconciliation is is a big part of the value. And then the other part of the value is validating some of the things that, that the client already knows. So it, it's, I'd say for most clients, it's a mix of both, you know, validation and surprises. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that that would be, especially if there's different leaders in the room and what that looks like for the organization, obviously a, a critical step into ensuring that your technology project or implementation is successful and being able to understand the appetite for change. Um, one other thing I really liked that you guys discussed or that um, some of our audience asked about was the, the agile approach um, or methodology and the effect on change management. And a lot of times I think agile can be misinterpreted in the fact that it it, it um, you know affects greater change because it is more flexible sometimes um, as opposed to focusing on speed and overall um, acceleration throughout that point that you mentioned, both of you mentioned, can risk leaving out organizational change management. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit more and thought, could you give us um, kind of a a definition of the agile approach and its relationship to change management? Yeah. So, so the agile approach really originated in the software development space where in the past, if you were going to create a new software solution, you would do what they would call a waterfall approach, where you have clearly defined phases and you mm-hmm. don't move into the next phase until you pass some sort of stage gate or checkpoint. And it could be that the first stage is your definition of business requirements and you get everyone in the organization to sort of buy into that set of business requirements. Then you hit that checkpoint, sign off on it, then you move into designing and building the software. Um, then once you get past that and the technical tests all pass, then you move into, um, you know, the user acceptance testing and then you move into training. So, you know, there's sort of these sequential, um, these sequential paths with very little overlap. And the problem with it and the reason why the, the pendulum sort of swung away from waterfall back to this agile model is because a lot of these software development projects were just taking so long. It was consuming so much time and money. And a lot of the projects were getting canceled or going over budget, running into problems along the way. And they never got to the point where they actually got business value out of the software development project. So the answer, of course, and as as humans, oftentimes we overcorrect and say, well, let's do this agile thing where mm-hmm. we just start building stuff and we we deliver it to the organization. We get a minimum viable product or an MVP out there to the organization. We let people poke holes in it and tell us what they like and don't like about it. And then we modify it. And it's more of an organic, less structured approach with the idea being that you have these series of sprints where you, you, instead of having one big massive rollout, you have these little incremental sprints and you're constantly delivering business value. sounds good in theory, but what ends up happening a lot of times is you end up 
go in a million different directions and it becomes a exercise to to automate what you've already done rather than taking a step back and taking the time to say this is what our future state operating model is going to be these are the hard difficult decisions we need to make we're going to make those decisions then we're going to put the technology behind it um and so back to your question about change management then with agile and i think i mentioned this in the discussion with nate with agile the risk is that you've got this moving target or an undefined target that you're trying to help people navigate their changes through um, and so that sort of puts change managers and change management teams into a, a pretty difficult spot. Um, so anyway, that's that's really the point I was getting at. I, I don't necessarily think Agile is good or bad, and I don't think Waterfall is good or yeah. bad. Again, it depends on the type of project it is. If you're, you know, if you're a big massive, if you're part of a big massive transformation where you're overhauling your entire operations, you're doing an M&A integration, or you're moving to, to a shared services model, or you're deploying new enterprise-wide technologies, that usually lends itself better to a waterfall approach. But if you're a, if you're a small entrepreneurial company and you're just implementing sort of targeted technologies that can be rolled out and deployed faster, then that agile approach could make a lot more sense uh, for, for that type of organization. But either way, your, your change management strategy has to align with whatever, whatever approaches you're taking. Yeah, I think that that's really well said, um, a great definition of, of what that looks like. But most importantly, no matter the approach you take, change management needs to be involved in that and needs to match the overall project strategy and overall objectives as well. Um, and speaking of, of strategies and objectives, I really liked how you guys talked about how you need to be intentional. Organizations need to be intentional about not only um, their change management core team, change influencers and communication, but also the expectations that come from the organization. And I think a lot of times that can, when you, you know, you bring in a new software, expectations can a lot of times change or new technology can cause change. And just understanding how you're able to achieve that in, you know, actionable and realistic goals. Because um, a lot of times, organizations, especially leaders, think that you can just change 180 overnight. And that's really not how that works. And it can be more detrimental. So you really have to be intentional about how you set those goals in that timeline for change. Yeah, absolutely. And that that gives you that that sort of uh, North Star guiding light for how you would go through your transformation. And, and not only metrics for the transformation itself, but what do you what metrics do you expect for the organization after you go through the transformation exactly. what yeah. you're aiming for as well? Yeah. What is that metric for success and, and defining that from a change management standpoint. And that's really what Nate talks about and a lot in our content is teaching us how to measure change management and understand that there are metrics that can be derived and excavated from the change management process. Um, that's important for, uh, businesses to take those metrics at a variety of consistent frequencies. Uh, it's not just, yeah, our user adoption went from 70 to 80%. Now it's about understanding how that technology influences our overall culture and measuring that culture as well when it comes to um, technology implementations is just that overall journey doesn't end you know, when you push go live. So I thought, you know, that's something that he really kind of champions and preaches here within our content development processes. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, good stuff. I think that was such a great conversation. Um, always great to hear from Nate on the show and uh, his change practitioner role here at Third Stage uh, and how that looks like from the leadership team. So thanks so much for facilitating that. That was a really awesome conversation. Absolutely. And thanks to Nate for being here on the show and to the great audience questions we had as well. That that really uh, made that a fun conversation mm -hmm. just with all the different angles that, that the audience uh, came at it from. Um, so we're going to shift gears completely away from change management here. Uh, we, we've kind of covered that human component of change. So it only makes sense that we, speaking of overcorrections and pendulum swing in dramatic fashion, uh, we're going to shift gears now in the next segment and have Khalid Morris on the show. And Khalid's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage. And he's actually one of our more technical people. He's, mm -hmm. he's a great mind for business process improvement and change management, digital strategy all the stuff we do, but he's actually the, one of the more stronger, deeper technical resources we have on our team. And uh, he's going to be on the show talking about privacy and cybersecurity. And it's actually a clip that we, uh, or a, a presentation that he uh, gave during our recent digital stratosphere, uh, digital event, which you can go back and listen to the replays of all the sessions. I think there's 15 or so different sessions that you can listen to um, at stratosphere2022.com. So be sure to check that out. But we're going to play you a specific clip from that conference where Khalid talks about privacy and cybersecurity. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Primary If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. You can find new episodes every Wednesday of the show. And we are going to shift gears quite a bit from our last guest. Our last guest we had on was Nate, and we talked about change management and the human side of change. But now we're going to do a 180 and go deep into the technical components of change, or one of the technical components of change, which is privacy and cybersecurity. That's a, a hot topic for sure, and something that we talked about at our Digital Stratosphere 2022 event, which, by the way, if you missed that and you'd like to see some of the replays, you can go stream any of those sessions you missed at stratosphere2022.com, including this one, which is an interview with, uh, or not an interview, but a presentation by Khalid Morris, who's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage. He gave a keynote session uh, a few weeks ago when we had that event focused on privacy and cybersecurity. So all that being said, we're going to play this clip from Digital Stratosphere 2022. And uh, when we come back after the uh, after we play the clip, we'll unpack some of the concepts here in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, let's roll this clip of Khalid presenting on privacy and cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity and uh, data management. I, uh, this is a, a, a complicated space. 
um, uh, particularly on the security front. There's a lot of moving parts here and there's a lot to um, uh, kind of sort your um, head around. Uh, so I definitely am uh, happy to kind of be here and, and, and to be able to um, at least provide a little guidance and hopefully hopefully, uh, some of the things that I say uh, will be a benefit to those um, uh, that need. Um, we're really just going to talk about those two areas um, as a basic goal. Uh, we just want to sort of outline any security points for um, a technological solution. And um, uh, likewise, um, on the data management side of this, we'll keep it um, very basic and high level. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, we're not necessarily going to drive too much into um, a bunch of hard details. It's it's sort of like a, a black hole. Once you kind of go down certain windows, you just can't come out. You just kind of stay right there because there's so much to talk about in um, uh, any one of, of, of these areas. Um, but hopefully we can field, sorry, <laughs> field any, some questions um, um, that you have in those particular areas. Um, but other than that, I, I think we'll just want to try to give you a, a broader view of, um, uh, of, of what's kind of occurring. Um, uh, within the cybersecurity space, uh, these are sort of the three blocks that I, I really want to touch on. Um, uh, first, access. Um, uh, and, and, and access is a, you know, traditional, when you think of access, think about it from uh, access points um, for a, um, a particular um, technological solution. Um, those access points could be laptop, it could be um, you could be on the office um, or, or, or network system, or um, you could be on your mobile. Um, there's different types of access points. And so um, when I think of access, I think about it across um, some of the, the, the ways that we access um, our technological data. Um, uh, security from uh, the perspective of an application, I'm thinking, or, or, or most of what I'm sharing here will be within the context of a configuration. So that's a build of the um, application itself and kind of how certain modules are uh, secured uh, versus um, others. And then on the data side, um, how data security works um, uh, with respect to these uh, individual applications or an overarching um, uh, structure. Okay, in terms of uh, application access, uh, application access can be uh, fairly complicated um, uh, uh, nowadays. Uh, the basic parameter around uh, application access is authentication, either single factor or a multi-factor authentication. And this is sort of your basic passwords, or at least your, your basic password for the single factor. Multi-factor, they may have sort of that second, you remember a lot of the time, a lot of banks use this, where uh, you may enter your password information, but then they'll require you to um, uh, validate that with your cell phone or have a security key around your cell phone or some sort of, you know, some sort of, uh, of, of uh, a remote access key that you sort of have to enter in order to get into the system. And uh, it's, it's sort of a double layer and you sort of have to do it every single time. There usually isn't a save space. That's usually what they're trying to get around is um, a uh, application that, uh, you know, or a lot of the browsers that might save your username and password and um, into their browser settings and uh, a user who isn't necessarily you can then use it. So that's how the, the multi-factor uh, kind of works. Um, on the client side, um, you know, an individual computer, if you will, uh, can have access, right? It could be a company issued laptop can have um, can have access to um, either a, a, a web-based 
um, application, or even if it's not, um, if, you know, certain IPs are accepted and certain ones aren't. So if you're not trying to get into the system via um, uh, a, a approved clients, then you then they won't allow you to necessarily uh, get into that particular system. And the other common uh, uh, use on the security front is network security. So you can lock down the whole network. So you can only access uh, a given uh, application if um, uh, you are on premise uh, or within the overall network and outside of that network. It's like a private kind of network uh, where, um, uh, you know, there, there are certain controls around that, uh, then you wouldn't necessarily be able to um, access the, the, the application or website even if you're not necessarily on site, like if you're just at home, you can't access it. But once you get on site, you can. Uh, and then there's cloud access. Clouds are pretty, um, If you depending upon how a, a given uh, application or, or, or technological solution is sort of built. If it's built within a cloud structure, then you do have the parameters of a cloud. Um, and, and, and this also applies to certain um, uh, web-based systems. So if you think of a system that is totally um, designed and um, you know used in the cloud, it's completely 100% web-based. They are already are sort of automatically are subject to a lot of cloud-based um, uh, cybersecurity controls. I think though one of the important parts of um, that sort of needs to sort of get mentioned mentioned as it relates to the, uh, that is um, uh, on-premise uh, security is not necessarily safer. Um, then cloud-based security, I think that's a, a common misconception. It's been a misconception for years and years. I think maybe originally, it, it, I think there was some validity, validity to it. Uh, but at this point, uh, there's not that much validity to it. And it's not to say that on-premise uh, uh, solutions aren't secure or that they can't be more secure uh, than the cloud, because they certainly, they certainly can. Um, it's just the likelihood is low. And a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, a lot of cloud-based companies, I mean, they have teams that, uh, uh, cybersecurity teams, that, uh, that, is, that is their job, that is the job of the team to secure the cloud. So you don't really hear about a ton of breaches. You hear about a breach every now and then, um, but you know, there's probably people trying to attack um, us, uh, you know, cloud, cloud infrastructures or applications every day, um, and, and they're not particularly successful. So there's multiple levels um, at the cloud on the cloud side where there's security. And so it just becomes um, a lot of layers for a, a given hacker to kind of uh, come through. So uh, as it relates to recommendations, um, I, I do want to make a note that, you know, and this is maybe it's just me um, having, you know, dealt in this particular space and seeing a lot of different um, sort of build outs. I, I do think it's important to note that you wanna be careful with respect to security and you don't wanna necessarily create a poor user experience or um, a, a bunch of inefficiencies that uh, develop in your organization because you're almost over-secured. Um, I, I know that sounds um, ridiculous, but um, in, in, in some cases I've seen it. And um, all of this is gonna be subject to a lot of the uh, you know, the, the parameters that uh, organization has to work within. Uh, if you can imagine HIPAA, for example, if you, if you have to deal with HIPAA laws, 
um, then you have certain security measures that you have to follow. Likewise, um, if you're maybe a public company or, or something like that. So, so there's no broad brush here as it relates to security. I think that there's some baselines that have to be factored in across uh, every organization and, and, and kind of when you're starting to work with an organization at this particular, you start to create like or, or at least outline what some of those requirements are going to be and you sort of attack them there, right? Particularly like a banking, they may have some different requirements than maybe a manufacturing company. But just in general, you do want to kind of think about how do you kind of create an environment where there is ease of use. I personally like to kind of think about it from a client access versus with maybe multi-factored if, um, if, if that's more desired or sort of switching it, if there's a lot of network access with quality security there, then having the security knowing that, okay, we can, we can do more single factor authentication because you can really only access this when you're on the network to begin with. So there's ways to kind of make that easy rather than create an environment, for example, where you got multi-layer, um, uh, multi-factor authentication and you have net network access um, authentication you know it's it's just it turns into a space where it's like we're securing at every single level and it just creates um, a, 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 a certain difficulty when uh, trying to uh, get access to your um, uh, when trying to get access to an application so um, that's uh, application access uh, in terms of configuration access uh, a given Every ERP system will have some form of configuration uh, security. And um, I, I, I really, um, I think the, the same point applies here with respect to being over secured, but, but, I, but I do kind of want to walk through a lot of these recommendations and, and kind of how app, uh, configuration security kind of works. Um, because an application will have a set of defined roles and I think it's very, very important, particularly during an implementation, that um, uh, that those administration roles are taken uh, seriously. Everyone kind of wants to raise their hand, you know, and say, "No, I'll, I'll be a super user, or I'll be one of the administrators." Um, uh, but then, you know, the organization sort of starts to become dependent upon that particular role, and if they don't necessarily if they're not available uh, to, um, for example, if you're one of the security administrators, um, you know, and you have to provide access to a new user, um, if you're not available or you don't, you don't really know how to do it or really, really want to do it, um, then it sort of creates uh, an issue within the overall organization. So um, usually administration is happening at every single module. There's usually some form of of security administrator for every single module within an, an, an application. And then there's some form of, um, of security administrator for the overall um, uh, application uh, in general. And um, uh, so it's important to sort of create um, what I'm calling the security metrics, where you have those user roles sort of outlined uh, across your organization sort of and, and kind of fit that and review that and make sure that the right people are associated with that and make sure that there's proper backup for um, for a given role uh, so that you don't create a scenario where um, you have this application and that that needs an approval and there's no one to approve or um, that role has not necessarily been defined yet or the person that's on approval is on vacation right now or maybe they just left the organization and there's no one there for for backup it sort of creates this um, again inefficiency um, uh, within a given process or within the organization that a lot of the times can sort of be be uh, be, be handled um, through uh, a uh, 
a, a, a well-defined security metrics, um, you know, and, uh, and the unfortunate part about it is a lot of those security metrics are done in Excel. So there's no real notification process when an individual leaves or when an individual is um, uh, uh, um, on vacation. Um, but just the same, it's very, very important um, that you at least at a bare minimum know whose responsibility is what within the application or within a configuration so that you can kind of go to that particular person, uh, particularly when consultants are gone, when the consultants uh, are no longer in the room and, you, and you're responsible for the entire application. And this can be a problem. Okay, and then there's data security. I think data security is, I don't say it's often overlooked, uh, but there's, I, I, I lump into there some of the integration components, um, um, but uh, you can have security at the database level, right? So you can have your application grade, you can access in it, but then the data itself maybe sits on a server, a SQL server and there's security points um, there. You can also kind of have um, uh, web service uh, security points um, where um, there's um, password sort of authentication uh, revolving around a given API. So what uh, web service can call into that particular uh, database to uh, access um, uh, uh, data, um, that security point um, needs to be uh, well-defined as well. Um, there's a, a certain amount of security that can be, this might be application specific, but can be around uh, individual reports. Uh, some applications sort of allow for um, that level of definition. Um, where you know you 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 have a given report and only certain people can sort of see this report. Other organizations may put it within the context of a module. I'm sorry, other softwares may put it within the context of a of, of an overall module. You have access to the module. You don't necessarily have access to a module or or specific pieces of that particular module. But I'm, I'm talking specifically about a data report here and uh, the use of that. Um, some organizations sort of have. Uh, 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 data points, uh, I'm sorry, access points around that. Uh, data encryption here, um, as it relates to data, I think is a very important uh, detail. Uh, data encryption and then data um, uh, encrypting folders. So you can encrypt the data itself so that there's um, uh, uh, certain types of, of, um, uh, of uh, you know, masking for the individual data fields within sort of a, a data a, a data set, right? Or you can so and you can also encrypt folders where that data in, where that data lives. Uh, the encryption of folders is critical, certainly for um, implementation um, uh, integrations. Um, uh, you kind of have to have that, and I think I I note that a little bit later on. But the data encryption for specific data within a database. Um, is a is a level of sensitivity that you know I think is a, a, should only sort of be reserved to certain types of data, um, and all of this for me kind of gets into the need to uh, really outline where your sensitive data is um, uh, because there's there's certain data within your organization that um, you're you're legally bound to uh, protect certain ways um, things like social security numbers credit cards et cetera et cetera a, a breach there could could be on a different scale particularly if it's um, you know customer related or or, or, or something on that scale so uh, it's important to kind of go through your over all the data that your organization kind of has and sort of outline the buckets where uh, sensitive where sensitive data lives it's not all the same. And it's not all, it shouldn't all be treated the same way. And it shouldn't all live in the same place necessarily. I think that 
Um, I think we've, we've gotten to a point where we can segment um, um, certain parts of our data and it not necessarily uh, be a, a big thing uh, um, uh, with respect to your overarching um, architecture. Uh, so, you know, outlining the data that must be protected, outlining data that needs to be protected. So data such as financial data, right? You don't want profitability to um, necessarily be seen if it does. It's not the end of the world, but uh, you, you, you might want to guard against some of that particular data uh, or uh, some of the uh, salary, for example, data. Uh, you may uh, want, um, you know, one, you know, one, you know, one person salary, even the same level. You don't necessarily want um, uh, everyone to, uh, to, to see that. And so the data measures around these buckets of sensitivity can be slightly different. And uh, that not that's not necessarily odd, um, um, per se. Um, uh, I think it's uh, very important to uh, have a flexible strategy there um, to um, outline those particular data sets and then sort of apply uh, the necessary security measures um, um, as a result. So that's uh, data security. Okay, we're here talking about cybersecurity and privacy with Khalid Morris. We're going to take a quick break and we'll pick up the conversation. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here with Khalid Morris talking about privacy and cybersecurity. For, I guess, overall data structure, um, I, I think it's important to define data management um, because a lot of people use it. Uh, I, I hear it so many different ways. Um, I, I think about it as the whole suite. I think about it as everything data related. I think about it as any policies, procedures, uh, data structures, like everything is on the table as it relates to, um, uh, to, to data management in my mind. Um, I, I think as a, as a practice, and I, I, I rarely see this, honestly, organizations that have a data dictionary, but there should be certain uh, identification, understanding of the type of data um, that you have um, uh, within your organization. Like, like what is it? Like, like what kind of data um, is it um, in, your, or in, in your system? Is it uh, data that lives, uh, is it role-based? Is it transactional? Is it analytical? What type of data is it? Um, is it structured? Is it unstructured? I mean, those are all pieces I think that uh, mean something. And um, outlining that uh, within an overarching uh, dictionary or really uh, architecture that sort of um, has all the different data models outlined within your organization is a good thing. I, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a favorite thing to do, particularly within the IT community. 
Um, but uh, this 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 last point here that I have outlined, I think, is a, a noteworthy one that uh, a lot of organizations miss, and that is data is a very valuable asset. Um, organizations are making money around data. I mean, there some organizations are built around um, uh, reselling data, uh, your data. Um, other organizations' uh, data that they you know passively. Uh, give to um, uh, these uh, organizations and they then uh, turn around and um, uh, create a marketing value um, out of those particular data points. I, I, I just say that to say that that approach to data should should be taken a little bit more seriously, I think, within uh, organizations. And this is part of that piece, like understanding the data that you have, understanding uh, um, uh, the overall structures of the different data sets, um, being able to identify any holes in these particular sets from a governance perspective. So after you create sort of a process, end-to-end uh, -end model, uh, all the different uh, data models that are there, and then kind of create this sort of process of mapping that uh, uh, shows kind of how data flows across your organization, I think you'll start to maybe even identify uh, where there's holes, especially as it relates to um, integration, uh, and then creating sort of a regularly backed up uh, schedule um, that's even absent of uh, maybe maybe you put it into your cloud environment, you kind of know where it is, uh, just in case, um, you, you know, you have to kind of, you know, call that data later in the event that uh, something um, happens. I think that's very, very important. I think those kind of strategies, I think, are uh, critical. Um, uh, within, I think, a well-functioning organization. And so, uh, uh, you know, data should be securely backed up. There should be proper locations. A lot of that, you know, should live within a cloud structure. There are usually um, ERP applications will provide some type of dynamic for that. One of the partners will provide some kind of service offering um, kind of around that. You should be able to just sort of do that natively through um, a basic kind of structure, even if you put a lot of those backup files into uh, an encrypted uh, folder or share folder that that, that you sort of have, um, that works too. But understanding where it is, understanding what it is and how it lives, I think is um, is, is is very, very uh, uh, important. So that's um, a data structure. In terms of um, big data, once you get outside of the structure of it and you kind of get into the actual data sets and some organizations not all organizations live in a big data world and i think when you hear the term big data a lot of the times it's um, uh, really integrates a lot of the different data sets that are out there um, because you, you you can now you have or today we have more access to um, uh, to different types of data that we can then sort of, um, you know, bring into um, our current data structures. And that sort of creates this dynamic where there's just a lot of data to sort of sift through. But individually, some organizations have huge data sets. Um, used to do a lot of work in the telecom space. And, uh, you know, they would have these insanely large data files, um, uh, if you can imagine, because they have so many, so many customers. And, um, the transactions for those customers would sort of extend over years. Uh, so, you know, you would have these streams uh, of, 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 of data. So um, as it relates to that, I think it does still kind of go back to architecture a little bit and kind of understanding first kind of where your data is, uh, uh, you know, and then why that data is as big as it is. A, a lot of the times it's not so much based upon you know the basic parameters around we have so many customers right like 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 yes that's 
um, a, a, a normal use case for um, having a large data sets. Um, but a lot of the times it may be how the data is uh, kept. It may be where uh, the data is kept. Um, certain um, uh, uh, databases may uh, may create a larger sort of, uh, of um, um, it, it, it made the storage requirements for those data sets, for those databases may be larger than others. I really think of structured versus unstructured data. A lot of those structured um, uh, data uh, uh, storage uh, pieces are gonna be larger. Uh, and, and, and as a result, I think you can potentially consider unstructured data if you kind of need to skinny some of that up. Um, why you would want to skinny some of that up is because sometimes big data can be a problem. Um, sometimes it can cause issues with respect to loading. So um, a lot of applications that are kind of slowly loading are oftentimes loading that way because the data set is too large. Um, there are certain parameters around um, uh, applications that sort of a RAM, for example, that sort of limit or in memory um, uh, uh, it might, you know, sort of limit how large a data set can sort of be brought into um, a space to be analyzed. Uh, and uh, as a result, kind of, you may need to skinny some of that data down. There are ways to do that without necessarily, um, um, uh, you know, sort of, you know, removing your data. But, you know, there, there, there are ways to sort of skinny it down by just changing the structure from uh, from structured to unstructured or, or having proper filtering so that we're really just calling the data that we absolutely need. Um, but there's some strategy that you can uh, incorporate within your overall design. And, and I think that strategy points back to what is the overall arching data architecture and having a data architecture that um, uh, allows for uh, the need to bring in the kind of data that you need to bring in um, in manageable ways. Uh, one way to uh, the tools that are sort of used for this is ETL. For those that don't know what that is, that's extract, transform, and load, uh, where you're extracting data from one place and you're transforming it. Maybe you're transforming it based upon a set of parameters. You might be filtering it down. You might be creating um, a logic around that to sort of aggregate parts of that particular data that might skinny skinny up um, some, some data. You might be um, creating calculations around some of those um, data sets to sort of uh, produce sort of a certain result. And then you load that into the system that you want that system loaded to. Sometimes you're just putting it into a skinny, um, uh, sometimes you're putting it into an encrypted folder for an application to sort of pick up. But um, it's sort of a more common tool um, that's used also APIs. It's not here, but an API is uh, also a, a, a means for um, calling data um, from a, a, a different place. Um, but in general, um, you know, you, you have to sort of create sort of uh, an environment where um, your, your your data isn't necessarily as big as um, um, as it uh, as is lean. You want to create an environment where your data is lean versus uh, unnecessarily big. Um, and also, you want to uh, if you have those backups stored, that's great. Uh, you want to delete as a result of that. Maybe if you have a backup and you have a policy that says we're going to delete um, uh, files within the application because we have them backed up after a certain point um, and we're going to decommission, you know, after a further point. So you can kind of have strategies that sort of create uh, a skinnier lean environment uh, and uh, the skinnier the lean, the leaner the environment, the faster the overall application can kind of perform. Uh, so uh, you do want to kind of think about um, all of those different components. But um, just, just to reiterate the point, 
Um, uh, big data can be a problem. Uh, it can be a, it can create a lot of uh, performance issues uh, within an application and 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 really bother the overall uh, end user experience. Um, but it also is a manageable one. So um, you know you can kind of create some um, uh, ways to kind of work around any uh, big data issues that you may be having if you deal uh, with larger uh, data sets. And lastly, here on the integration side, um, integration is, uh, it's, I think, you know, the, one of the most critical parts of an organization's digital strategy. Um, as great as the idea is that you have one system where all of your data exists, uh, where everyone lives in this one place and it does everything that we need it to do, um, the likelihood of having that is low. Uh, to be frank, um, uh, you know, especially as your organization becomes uh, more and more complicated, uh, you have needs that sort of extend beyond the capacity of um, an ERP system that that's that's working for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean we need to we need to go buy another ERP system. It may mean that, um, but you may then just have uh, a, a third party tool that works in conjunction with your ERP system. And after that, at that point, you then have an integration uh, issue to sort of manage. Um, I think that uh, you have to design a plan uh, for uh, your overall integrations. And um, it's important to understand that this should be based upon your data needs. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, when 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 you know people think about integrations, they kind of think about the tools and 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 but but they don't necessarily treat integrations a lot of the times as sort of a separate um, uh, requirement gathering sort of stage. A lot of the times, uh, functional requirements are gathered, um, applications are sort of selected uh, based upon that. Decisions are made on the functional side, and integration is sort of a back burner. Um, but I can assure you, I've been on several implementations that have been delayed because the functional side is well, you know, well down the line of of doing the things that they, um, uh, uh, you know, need to do, and the integration part is lacking. Um, integration is is a core part of of, of all of this, and you kind of have to outline requirements for them separately. Um, if, and 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 if those requirements extend beyond the application itself on the functional side, then you kind of need to have a plan for how you're going to uh, integrate those particular data points. I think that uh, those requirements can extend into issues such as, and we kind of talked about this in a in a in a separate session. I think that, that, that Kyler was kind of referencing, but batch data versus having real-time access to that, that particular data. Um, those are, are based upon your needs again, not necessarily based upon um, what's what's cool or what's ideal. You may not necessarily need that data in real time. And if you don't, then you know there's no need to spend extra to try to create uh, a customization or a, um, an, an API, a web, a web service, if you will, that uh, can do something like that. Uh, some, some kind of batch may be just fine for that. So it should all be based upon your particular needs. Work within the structures of these ETL API kind of tools that are kind of out there. A lot of applications will have uh, packaged APIs that they already um, have, are pre-configured to sort of uh, manage against. Others may not, and they may have uh, APIs that, uh, you know, that uh, you, you sort of have to use through a tool, an ETL type of tool. Others may, you know, other requirements may, you know, call for an API to be custom. 
uh, in that situation, I think you want to avoid that as much as possible. But, um, you know, there are situations where a custom API may be necessary uh, to call particular data. But in either event, I think that's all requirement based. So it's very important that you outline with what requirements you sort of have. Uh, the other part to uh, integration is, uh, and, and most people have this, but it's just important to note is you're going to need a data encryption um, uh, strategy. And a lot of that will revolve around uh, folders, um, uh, encrypted folders that are somewhere in your shared structure, um, uh, you know, where sort of data is going to sort of live having a, a, a even a smart naming system for a lot of these folders so that you know a particular folder only has um it can only receive certain data files having a naming convention for um the files that are produced in there that that convention could be based upon the name of you know the data that's sort of there it could be a date that's a, it can be timestamp associated with that it could be um, uh, you know, some it could be a standard name. It could be a lot of integrations pick up a particular file name. So it could be a situation where you just name it, um, you know, file, and 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 the integration knows to pick up the file from this particular location, and um, and the name of that um, uh, pickup file is file, right? So so you can uh, do this a number of different ways, and I think there's a strategy around what makes the most sense for the overall organization. Uh, when you're sort of outlining um, where uh, files you know should be and kind of what those names should be and um, all the likes and again all of this for me comes back to uh, the integration requirements and understanding what exactly are the needs of the organization for this particular uh, data set and uh, once you kind of define those i think the strategy and, and the other parts start to become simple um, a lot of the times this effort doesn't necessarily get done until you know, till you kind of get into the middle of an implementation. And I think it can cause some delays as a result. Uh, you want to get on um, this as early as possible and start to um, share early in your implementation how you need uh, your integrations to go, how you sort of need your data to sort of be managed. I think that makes the overall experience a little bit easier. All right, Khalid, great presentation. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate having you on the show. Uh, there's a lot of concepts to unpack within that session on privacy and cybersecurity. So when we come back, Kyler and I are going to talk about some of those key themes and concepts. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com. And you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So 
Hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 65. My name is Eric Kimberling. We just had Khalid on the show talking about privacy and cybersecurity. What were some of your thoughts in that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, well, I love how Khalid can always take a very technical subject and make it so easy to understand. Um, at Digital Stratosphere, he also did data management and um, supply chain management, uh, which you were on that panel with him. So always um, a great piece to be able to understand. And I think what, what he really breaks down in that conversation is that every business, no matter the size, can have some sort of cybersecurity. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to get hacked or anything like that. It's just, it should be part of your master data management plan is that cybersecurity piece and making sure that you're not only looking at it from an infrastructure standpoint, but also network security, application security, all of those different types of things that are important considerations um, as well. And I also, yeah. uh, you know, I know he touched on uh, some cloud security. And so I wanted to dig into that a little bit, too, with you. Sometimes I think a lot of times um, cloud can either get this um, overall perception that it's it's definitely a bigger risk. You know, we've we've looked at things like AWS that go down and that might not be a cybersecurity issue, but that kind of goes hand in hand with having just that overall access um, to the cloud systems. So I wanted to ask you just, you know, straight up, do you feel like cloud si systems are less secure or more secure or it depends? Uh, you know, I don't know, to be honest, I, I, I don't even, I'm not even confident enough to say it depends because um, I just think there's a lot we don't know. I just feel like there's mm -hmm. a, we, time, it's too early to tell. I, on one hand, I feel like if anyone's going to be able to lock down security in, in, uh, protect customer or protect their customers data, which in turn houses those customers, customers data. Um, I would assume that the cloud providers and software vendors that have millions or billions of dollars to lose would, you know, and, and they also have bigger R&D budgets and bigger budgets in general, they're going to be able to do a better job in general as a broad generalization. But on the flip side, also bigger targets too. So I don't know what the, what the, uh, not the risk reward, but the the supply and demand is that the, I don't know if that's the right word, but the you know I don't know if the the security um, the elevated security that a big software vendor mm -hmm. provides I don't know if that outweighs the increased bullseye that they've got on them to right like that I'm not sure so I think it's you know we've seen some recent hacks with uh, you know I think Netsuite I want to say Netsuite was hacked recently or they, it went down there was a big outage. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's there's been some challenges with other uh, vendors as well. So I think time will tell. But at, at this point, I, I really don't know. I think there's pros and cons to either approach. Yeah. So say you are a small to medium sized business or um, a mid market business and wanted to look into cybersecurity. Is your software vendor a good place to start or what's that relationship look like when it comes to they sold you the software, you implemented it. Now, whose job is it to keep it secure? Well, it's a good question. It's it's not, you know, you're trying to lock down more than just your software applications. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, yeah, your software vendor should be able to provide a certain amount of cybersecurity uh, comfort and privacy. But there's also other more human and behavioral issues that have nothing to do with the software or the software vendor. It has more to do with how you lock down your own data. So if you have a big uh, ERP, 
ERP system that houses all of your data throughout the entire organization, do you have the right security profile set up for your individual mm-hmm. employee? That's that's not a software or a technical security issue. That's more of a uh, internal governance issue, data governance and, and security governance. So it yeah, you have to look at the technical components from your software providers, uh, any cloud hosting providers you might work with, your IT your IT support, if it's outsourced your internal, your internal behavioral sorts of things that we talked about, all that stuff ties into uh, cybersecurity. Absolutely. And I think that's what Khalid was talking about kind of on the infrastructure side is just making sure that you understand that um, from not only a, a user profile, but that should be part of any digital transformation is identifying those different um, levels of users or clearance levels that that need to happen. So um, definitely a, a great conversation with Khalid. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. So he's been a guest on our show multiple times. And be sure to reach out to him if you uh, if you do have questions on this content or, you know, we're happy to facilitate a conversation. But like Eric said, he is uh, very, very uh, well-versed and um, well-trained on the cybersecurity and overall data management side of the business. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to great to have uh- great to have him on the show again and i look forward to having him again in the future i'm sure he'll be on many times in, in episodes to come so i want to uh thank you kyler for a, another great episode we're going to wrap it up at this point but thank you for all the great hot topics and interview discussions and whatnot thank you to the audience for listening in today and all the great uh, feedback and uh, be sure to check us out next wednesday uh, every wednesday a new episode comes out of the show and you can also uh, listen to our sister podcast which is called digital stratosphere And you can find that on YouTube as well as all the audio podcast platforms as well. So hope you all have a great week and we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. 